0: Hey, it's Curious City digital and engagement producer Maggie Sivet. And this week, Curious City heads to Pilsen to kick off an occasional series we're doing about Chicago's neighborhoods. And we wanted to start in Pilsen because it's a neighborhood we get asked about a lot. Perhaps the thing we heard most frequently when we spent some time in the neighborhood is that there's a resounding sense of community.
1: It's a community that's very friendly. Right?
2: I think this neighborhood is very unique. It has great spaces for the families to do things around.
3: I do feel like there's a strong sense of community amongst the people
4: that spend a lot of time in this neighborhood. Pilsen is a amigable. I feel at home, you know, and I'm from the north side. I grew up in Homo Park. That area is obviously very, very gentrified right now. So I go outside and I don't see people that look like myself. So I love that, like, here I could walk to La Casa del Pueblo and it's just like, I feel like I'm at home with my tias or something.
5: Definitely the community, like the sense of community you get within your neighbors. They look out
0: for you. Hillson is a community built through decades of social activism, civic engagement, artistic expression and appreciation. The neighborhood was first settled by Irish and German immigrants, who were soon supplanted by a large influx of Czech immigrants. They gave the neighborhood its name. But it's known today for its Mexican and Mexican-American population, who first began moving in during the 50s and 60s, some who'd been displaced by the construction of expressways or by the creation of the UIC campus. It continued to be a port of entry for decades. And since then, many have fought to maintain the neighborhood's identity and culture, its community. And on this episode, we're going to answer several questions about the neighborhood's history, about the role murals have played in creating the sense of community, how the people rose up and came together to fight for access to better education and a better school.
2: What really made me feel Anger to get involved in the fight for Juarez was taking a look at what my son had to deal with. The small lunchroom, the holes in the walls of the gym, the free-for-all.
0: Plus, how residents of Pilson took a Chicago housing peculiarity and made it their own. That's coming up.
2: Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org events.
0: As you peer up and down 18th Street, there's all kinds of shops and businesses.
4: You can walk down 18th Street and there's just so many different mom-and-pop shops. Those are the shops that have definitely stayed through the hard times.
3: I love how... You walk down and you get to see so much. Like
4: Just going to the first shop that catches your eye.
3: There's bookshops, there's coffee shops.
4: I come here to practice. To practice only uh, and buy some coffee.
3: Yeah, so the cafe jumping bean. So this is a concha and it actually has ice cream in it. La a lot of locally owned taquerias and bars.
2: I love the bars here. My favorite place is Simons on Sundays nights, karaoke nights. They have like Latin music to dance. I'm from Mexico City, so I like to dance a lot. And they have all kind of people, which I love. And the
4: architecture, like I love just looking up and looking at how the different the buildings are and how they've changed over
3: time. There's always, always, always something to do. I enjoy walking and it's a very walkable neighborhood to explore. And there's
0: also something else here in Pilsen that stands out in vibrant colors oftentimes literally. Definitely walk around, see all the art, the murals.
1: Yo pienso que si hay unos murales que si tienen un significado acá político,
3: otro significado acá más controversial.
4: I know a lot of like the local artists here and you know it's, it's awesome. Bueno pues
2: es muy bonito para nosotras, nosotros que somos de México, nuestras
3: Do a mural walk, just like right down 16th, and then if you go down 18th, there's just a lot of art, like the Loteria doors.
0: The Loteria doors. She's referring to a series of painted doors peppered around a stretch of 18th Street, a set of murals that caught one listener's eye. They wanted to know who painted these doors, and where did the idea come from. Pilsen is known for its murals, and these Loteria doors are part of that tradition. If you don't know what Loteria is, it's a traditional Mexican card game similar to Bingo. The cards are filled with vibrant illustrations of well-known Mexican imagery. There's El Sol, La Sirena, La Sandia, and El Diablito. And then there are the alternate versions of the cards. Latinx artists frequently riff on Loteria, with images like El Six-Pack. One local Chicago artist has even created Chicago tería with images of the city on each of the cards. And riffing on the Loteria cards is what Rick Garza was looking for when he came up with the idea for The Doors.
1: I was born in Chicago in in 1960, and then we, we immigrated back to Mexico for about three or four years, me and my mom and my younger brothers. And then we came back in about 1964. So since 1964, I've had a connection to Pilsen one way or another.
0: Rick wanted to do something to highlight the culture and contributions of Latinos who he says are often overlooked. He says he commissioned several different artists to paint the doors, inspired by some of the classic images, but with a respectful spin on the originals.
1: It's nice for the heritage of the Mexican-American community.
0: And though the images were inspired by Mexican culture, Rick said he also had a pragmatic reason for commissioning the paintings on the doors. He wanted them to look nicer.
1: And it was uh, mostly to combat, you know, gang graffiti, which was uh, a problem on our doors. I mean, the gang-banging culture was so thick, it was so nasty, and it was just a detriment to all the young people in the community. It was a machine that would chew them up and spit them out.
0: And he thinks the lottery doors have been a good thing for the neighborhood.
1: I think those doors in themselves have helped draw more people to Pilsen. I'm seeing children and grandchildren of people that lived here in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and they're walking around the neighborhood taking pictures and... You know, they think it's really cool.
0: So Rick had the idea for the doors, but the question asker also wanted to know who painted them. So we tracked down one of the painters, Rocio Urbano. We met up with her in front of the door she painted. It's on Laflin, just a bit north of 18th Street. And Rocio begins by describing the image on the door that she painted. It's titled La Doña and features Maria Felix, who by the way is not one of the original card figures.
5: Maria Felix is a Mexican actress who came up in, like, the 40s. And the reason that the card is labeled La Doña, because all the loteria cards have names at the bottom, is because she played two roles. One was La Doña Bárbara, and the other one was La Doña La Diabla. So that's why they call her La Doña. She was one of the biggest, probably the first female who took over, like, Mexican cinema, so she played a huge role.
0: Maria Felix is posed on an angle, hand on hip, and made up like a movie star. Behind her head, Rocio painted a halo, and there's a reason for that.
5: I think that Maria Felix represents a lot of things that empower women, you know. She was brave, and a lot of her roles had to do with fighting through patriarchy and oppression and rising to the top. And so that makes her a saint to me. Growing up in this neighborhood, there's always been art being painted in this neighborhood since, you know, before I was even born. So to be a part of that is really special. And I think to keep that tradition going is also really special. Honestly, it's like the biggest honor to be able to do it now. I never in a million years would have thought that I would be doing this, so.
0: And when she looks at her painted door now.
5: I see representation of female empowerment. I see representation of pioneers, a pioneer, pride, history. Yeah, these things.
0: And Rocio says it's been amazing to share this work with her community.
5: When I'm painting in public specifically, the conversations just with people that walk around the hood, like these doors specifically, we talk we talk to so many older people, usually it's younger people, but for um, La Doña en el Charro, it was like all of the older people came out and like were really excited and really happy to see something that they recognize from their era, you know? So I think, yeah, when you're painting in a public space, the most special thing is what the public thinks about the work that you're doing and to just engage in conversation and hear other people's stories just from a painting. I think for me, what's influenced my work has always been community. So I've always worked with people. It's it's rare that I work alone. I've always worked with youth or um, other groups of artists. And so for me, it's about community.
0: But that Mexican-American community that Rocio loves has been disappearing. As developers have come in and housing prices have skyrocketed, longtime families are leaving. In fact, the Lower West Side community area, which includes Pilsen, has lost nearly 40% of its Latino population in the past two decades. And some in the community have argued that murals like those on the Loteria doors, which add to Pilsen's vibrancy, are also contributing to gentrification in the neighborhood they worry that by making these properties more desirable to outsiders, it's pushing up the price of homes and rent. Teresa Maganya is the executive director at Pilsen Arts and Community House. And she says that for artists like herself and Rocio, when you work in Pilsen, you have to be aware of the responsibility that comes with painting there.
3: In terms of like, you know, the gentrification part of it, I, I think that as artists, we have to ask ourselves when we're doing artwork in a particular building how that contributes or not, you know, and really ask ourselves that question. Who's going to benefit from viewing the art that you're creating? Who's it really for? And she recognizes that. You know, because we're we're all trying to make a living as well, creating our, our artwork.
0: Still, Teresa's seen murals go up in Pilsen on newer rehabbed buildings. Murals that seem to have been commissioned for the sole purpose of increasing rent and property values. But murals also go up on buildings with longtime residents of the community. And people who grew up in Pilsen and who are choosing or fighting to stay there. That's why I think it's
3: kind of a fine line. Um, but I've also seen like really long time standing local mom and pop shop businesses here that, you know, embrace the artist community and ask them like, hey, you know, can you help, you know, do this door? Or have you, can you help do this small mural on the side of my wall? And she
0: says murals are important for Pilsen's identity, for recording its history.
3: I'm a, l- a little bit of the old school traditional belief, you know, the purpose of murals, telling a story, being a voice for a mass of people that maybe aren't being heard. So definitely the murals in Pilsen have, have served that from the first generation that started doing those here in the 70s. They were all very politically driven and really telling a story of the, the culture and the community that was being built here.
0: But she recognizes that recent murals like Rocio's are also important for telling Pilsen's story today.
3: I think it's interesting because it definitely highlights the culture that's still here. And I think as Pilsen's changing all the time, it's still a reminder to any new residents that there is like this deep Latino culture, Mexican culture here Mm -hmm. still.
0: And Rocio, the artist we spoke with who painted one of the Loteria doors, agrees with that. But she doesn't necessarily see murals like the one she's done as something that is spurring gentrification. As a painter and a Latina who grew up in Pilsen, she thinks that's too dismissive of the artist, generations of them now, and the work they've painted throughout the neighborhood.
5: I know everyone wants to ask that question. The tradition of mural painting has been going on in Pilsen for the past I don't know how many years by the Latino community and so to say that these murals are contributing to that, then you're saying that since the beginning of people painting in this neighborhood, they've been contributing to this, I think, inevitable situation. I mean, I'm all for the people who are helping defend the families from being pushed out of the neighborhood, but it's hard for me to agree that murals are contributing to that.
0: And Teresa Magana says she hopes the Loteria Doors and other public artwork by Mexican painters throughout Pilsen remain in Pilsen. And she's concerned because some of that history of Pilsen has vanished already. Some have been painted over or graffitied over, which makes them hard to restore. And so she hopes people from across the arts community can unite to help keep what's left preserved and celebrated. So you talked about the art. Do you have a favorite mural anywhere in Pilsen? My favorite mural is actually the one they're just building here in the corner. So right now it's like a big brown tree and it has like yellow, orange, bright colors. And I think what it's going to
2: be is it's going to show all the problems immigrants are having in this country on one side of the mural and the other side of the mural is going to be like all the... Organizations and all or the solutions uh, the the countries having uh,
0: for their problems. So it's gonna be very exciting to see it.
6: Muy bonito. eso es una cosa bien bonita que que nos revive a nuestro a nuestro Mexico, a todos que somos mexicanos. Muy bonito esas esas cosas que están haciendo.
3: As a Mexican American working in the arts, just like being around so many other young. Latin American creatives. I've always felt like you could constantly see like the artistic landscape changing, even from one day to another as you walk down the streets.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely a very beautiful thing about Pilsen. You know, everyone comes here to check out the murals.
0: One of the first things the community did when Benito Juarez High School opened its doors in 1977 was to paint murals inside and outside of the building. It took nearly a decade-long fight to get the high school. That fight was led by a coalition of parents, students, and activists who wanted a high school in their community that was reflective of that community. The school was named after 19th-century Mexican president Benito Juarez, the first and only indigenous Mexican president. The contractors who helped build it were Mexican-American. Listener Elizabeth Gutierrez wanted to know more about what was fueling the community activism around schools during this time, and how they were able to achieve their goal of getting a new school. So we turn to Nicole Marroquin. She's lived in Pilsen for more than a decade. She's also chair of the Department of Art Education at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and she's written and studied this history of Juarez High School for her art. And she says it's a complicated story.
4: There's multiple events that led up to it. This is part of a much longer lineage, right, of student and community and parent organizing.
0: Before Juarez opened, if you lived in Pilsen in the 1960s, you would have gone to Harrison, a public high school located two miles away from the center of Pilsen, in Chicago's South Lawndale neighborhood. South Lawndale was largely African-American, and Black students made up a majority of the student body at Harrison. Latinx students made up about a third. Harrison had a long history of overcrowding, forcing kids into makeshift, portable classrooms rather than allow them to attend nearby schools. There was racial conflict between the Black and brown students at the school. Students at the school were frustrated by the chronic lack of resources— Curricula that did not reflect their communities, and...
4: They knew that they deserved equal access. At the most basic level, they deserved to go to schools that were safe and clean, that were actually schools. Like, it makes a difference.
0: So, Black students at Harrison organized a walkout in September of 1968. Though hundreds participated in that initial walkout, Nicole says it didn't change much of anything at the school but it did draw attention from the rest of the student body. The next walkout was even bigger, nearly double the size of the first. There were more Black students, and by October...
4: There were a bunch of Latin American students, I'm just gonna use the term that was used at the time, yeah. because this included Puerto Rican students, students from other parts of Latin America, and also it was predominantly Mexican students, were also starting to notice the disparities and starting to organize.
0: Latinx students were upset there was hardly any access to bilingual education at Harrison, and graduation rates were extremely low.
4: So low, people were being permanently barred then from you know, all aspects of the economy, right? If the people going to a school aren't coming out with a diploma, where are they going? They're being forced into certain economies. They're, they're you know, that's going to write the trajectory of their life in a way.
0: Nicole says the 1968 student protests did help bring about changes in policies and curricula. But for many in Pilsen's Latinx community, these changes weren't enough. The racial tension at Harrison. The long commute. The inadequate resources. Teresa Fraga, a mother of a Pilsen teen at the time, was frustrated by all those things back then. But for her, those issues were secondary.
2: Those issues only exacerbated the problem. We got involved because we thought there has to be a high school in this community. We need a high school.
0: Teresa Fraga is considered to be one of the three founding mothers of Pilsen's Benito Juarez High School because of the leading role she played in bringing the high school to Pilsen. In the early 1970s, Pilsen only had a partial high school, Frobel. Teresa says it was a rundown old school that taught ninth graders, and for a brief time, 10th graders as well, and funneled them through to Harrison to finish up high school. Teresa's son, Hermann, went there, but she didn't get involved in the fight for a new high school
2: right away. I was shy, uh, growing up undocumented, and, you know, you, the less you notice the better. <laughs> you don't want nobody to see you, uh, trying to stay away from immigration. But then something happened with Erman, which concerned her. My son tells me, Mom, I'm on PC. I said, what does PC mean? He said, parent conference. And I said, why? He said, well, I don't know, they told me not to go to school until you, they never tell you everything, Uh until I come with a parent.
0: Her son, Herman, had been ditching class. And when she went to this parent conference, she says she got a firsthand look at the conditions of the school.
2: What really made me feel anger to get involved in the fight for Juarez was taking a look at Frobel taking a look at what my son had to deal with. The small lunchroom, the holes in the walls of the gym, the free-for-all and the lack of structure. Disarray, just a lot of disarray.
0: And what Nicole Maroquin pointed out about the curriculum at Harrison, the lack of cultural education that reflected the community, that was all true at Froebel as well.
2: But for Teresa... I didn't look at the curriculum because what was happening, that the environment was not conducive to learning. You could have had the best curriculum. So that didn't matter to me or even to the other leaders. Teresa says there were other concerns. The other thing is, okay, the students are leaving the building. They come back whenever they want. They open the door to an opposing gang, and then they come and have a fight in the bathroom because there was an exit near the basement bathrooms. Or they would pull out the, this, these are things that students would tell us. They, they pull out the wire from the electrical switch to make it dark, you know, to have fights. That was, that was our focus. Oh my God, this, this has to stop. Again, Nicole Marroquin.
4: And so the moms—and I say moms because I went and looked it up. I looked at the Board of Ed meeting minutes over in the the public library, and it's just lists of moms. But it was a lot of moms uh, sitting in, showing up at meetings, raising their voices.
0: Teresa became one of those moms involved in organizing, then in protests, and the community united behind them. She says she was only peripherally involved at first— that she avoided going out into the neighborhood because of her undocumented status. But more and more, she did go out. She and the other mothers grew their organizing efforts. They worked with the students and together tried to bend the system to work for them. But Nicole says despite these efforts, things were slow.
4: Because as you know, in Chicago, somebody says they're going to do something, you can't let up. You have to keep pushing.
0: Even though the Board of Education had approved plans to build a high school in Pilsen, not a lot was happening. So the mothers pushed on.
2: We didn't have lawyers. We didn't have uh, the aldermen with us. We just had our people power. That was powerful, powerful, because there were so many sacrifices.
0: It would take a few more years of protests and community organizing before Benito Juarez High School would finally open its doors in 1977. Nicole says it was a real accomplishment for the community.
4: The school is like part of many generations of, of people's commitment, community commitment, student commitment, and teacher commitment to equal access to education for the children of this
2: neighborhood, you know? Well, the hope for the school was that that it would embrace our students, that our students would learn about their culture, that they would carry that pride, with them. And you might think
0: that's where the story ends. But it's not. We'd be glossing over a lot to say that the struggle for quality education in Pilsen has been resolved. While residents finally had a public high school of their own, Teresa Fraga says there were lots of problems at the school. Many of the more systemic issues the students faced at Frobel and Harrison came along with it. Students struggled academically there were still issues with gangs. Graduation rates remained painfully low. And some parents began sending their kids to schools outside of Pilsen, avoiding Juarez. But the parents didn't give up. The students didn't give up. Teresa Fraga and her group, Pilsen Neighbors, they didn't give up. And in recent years, there's been all kinds of changes made and major revitalization of the school grounds, and even a name change to Benito Juarez Community Academy.
2: It has expanded its boundaries. It is now now an academy. And what is it, 40-some years later? For the last three or four years, they've had waiting lists.
0: And as for the school's lasting
2: legacy... Teresa Fraga says. It served as an anchor for other issues. It served as an anchor to build a library, to build the Westside Technical Institute, to refurbish the parks, to build new schools. So it served as a way for people to stay in Pilsen. It's, It's living up to what should have been from the beginning. Right now, it's the school to go to. We'll be right back. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events.
0: So, Pilsen has this long tradition of political and social activism, of people adapting the neighborhood and the city to fit their needs and better serve them. Another thing people here have adapted to is Pilsen's housing stock. See, lots of homes in Pilsen are sunken below the street and sidewalk level. So to get into many first floor apartments, you go downstairs from the sidewalk. Families gather on sunken patios or sunken side lots to barbecue and hang out, 10 feet below the sidewalk level. But why does Pilsen have these sunken houses below the street level in the first place? We set out to find an answer. And we started by asking some residents to see if they might know.
3: I don't, sorry. I mean, I would never live in one. I feel like it'd just be too dark. Um, I really don't know. I know that there's like new laws recently about how close you can be to the sidewalk on these, like on any of the levels, but that doesn't
4: have to do with the garden specifically. Maybe it's old, maybe it was built differently than the other houses that are around. Something about the water mm-hmm. levels, or I don't know what was going on here, but.
1: Why that door's down there? Cause that's like,
5: where the gas and the water stuff is down there and we don't want to live, like, all the way down there. Because it's like, that's just like a bunch of water lines, so I just think that's
6: kind of boring.
1: I've always been curious about it because I know, like, Pilsen and maybe, like, Bridgeport and other neighborhoods are the only ones that I've really seen like this, so I don't know if it's, like, it's a south side thing. I don't know how much I've seen it on the north side, but... I've always assumed it had something to do with either the fire when they rebuilt Chicago as a second city type of thing, or I figured it had something to do with keeping it above the water level, something like that. (laughs) So that's also, but yeah, I don't know. But those are my, like, things I've thought about.
0: Well, none of those are quite right. To find out the real story behind those sunken houses, we turn to Elizabeth Blaschus. She's an architectural historian. And she says the answer goes way back, like more than a century and a half ago.
6: Chicago was growing rapidly in the mid-19th century. In the 1830s, Chicago had a population of just about 300 people. And 20 years later, there were 30,000 people in Chicago. Additional people meant additional trash, it meant additional waste, and it also meant that density created a great situation for diseases like cholera and dysentery. Foundations had been built in a way that didn't allow for proper drainage. Chicago was very low and flat and the soil was not really good at absorbing moisture and we're also so close to the lake we've got the river so there was not a lot of natural drainage and everything was mushy and goopy and people were getting sick so Chicagoans kind of went to the city and said we really need to do something about this so in the late 1850s Chicago began a very ambitious public works project to um, build a sewer system that would handle all of that muck So they brought in an engineer named Ellis Sylvester Cheesebrough from Boston, and he designed a system to go underneath the streets. The streets had to be raised to accommodate all of those pipes in that system. So the paving system would go over that sewer system. And that kind of caused all of the existing buildings to kind of be at a lower level than the new street level. Mm -hmm.
0: So to accommodate this new sewer system, streets were sometimes raised as much as 14 feet in places. That's how we got the appearance of sunken buildings. So why don't we have sunken buildings all over the place,
6: right? Like all those old, old buildings? Because innovation. So there are all these engineering and architectural feats, and a lot of architects in Chicago kind of got their start lifting big downtown buildings. Wait,
0: what? Lifting buildings?
6: Yep, but
0: not like you and I when we're helping a friend move a couch. Nope, more like if you and I and a few other friends got a bunch of jacks and started jacking up a car, all in sync, except it's a building. And so in that case, you'd probably have
6: to get some pretty smart folks to figure out how to do it like George Pullman from the Pullman Porter Car Company, John Van Ostel, and W. W. Boyington, which are pretty well-known Chicago, early Chicago architecture names. So moving and lifting buildings kind of became a, a sort of spectacle, particularly downtown. In 1861, the Tremont Hotel downtown was famously lifted while guests relaxed inside.
0: Okay, so then with all those fancy jacks and famous architects, why are there still, to this day, so many homes in Pilsen still sunken below street level?
6: Moving buildings was optional. The city didn't provide any subsidies for building owners to do it, so many just adapted their buildings, constructing bridges from the street to their front doors. And there's a number of ways that people are dealing with the sunken areas that were created between the street and the houses. Some are just used to store furniture or in the olden days, coal. Some are used as outdoor areas and might have some concrete sculptures. And
0: Pilsen is hardly the only place in Chicago where you can find these sunken homes.
6: They're all over. There's a lot around Pilsen, Bridgeport, Back of the Yards, but then you also see them up north in Logan Square and in other neighborhoods, too.
0: So there you have it. Homes originally built at low levels, a sewer system that was built above them, and some folks who were able to raise up their homes to the new street level, and some who couldn't. Now, more than a century and a half later, we have the appearance of sunken homes throughout the city. And that wraps up our tour of Pilsen, past and present. Hope you all enjoyed the show. If you got a question about Pilsen or any other neighborhood in Chicago you'd like us to answer, you can send it our way by going to wbez.org slash Curious City. This podcast runs on your questions. Huge, huge, huge thank you to Leslie Hurtado and Monica Eng for their reporting on this episode. Thanks to the Lozano Public Library and Pilsen Community Market for hosting our question booths here in Pilsen, and to the many residents of Pilsen who pose so many amazing questions for us to track down the answers to. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation and produced by Joe Dessau and Jason Mark. Sophia Lowe is our intern, and Alexandra Solomon edits the show. I'm Maggie Sivet, the show's digital and engagement producer. Thanks for listening.
1: Is
3: there anything else you want to play? Oh
4: yeah, I can play mariachi. Yeah.
1: So it's really Thank fun you. to listen to. Thank you. To. Uh, um, you know, coming again, I, I keep going
6: every day, you know. Okay. Do you have any idea why the houses are... We're from WBEZ.
1: Okay, I figured. WBEZ is like a lot of people to walk around with this like set up. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. but our college students, you know.
2: <laughs> Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR.